Okay, so we're continuing today with the exposition of the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 11. If you are able, please rise for the reading of God's word. We are in chapter 11 of Romans, beginning at verse 7. And the word of God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit without error and with authority, reads as follows. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in times when we come across texts such as this one, let us be reminded, Lord, that the mind of man, the human understanding is limited when compared to your infinite wisdom. So, Lord, allow us to submit and to believe your word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you may grant us the humility this morning that your Holy Spirit gives us eyes that see, ears that hear, and a heart that receives your truth. We ask this in the name who is the way, the truth, and the life, the name of Jesus, God Almighty in the flesh. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I've titled today's sermon, as we begin the passage here in verse 7, The Effects of Unbelief. The passage is treating the unbelief of Israel. Their unbelief has certain effects. And Paul brings us some prophecies, some references from the Old Testament that were both prophecies in the sense that the people back then were living that and throughout the history of Israel in the rejection of God's provision of the prophets and, and his word and his oracles. And then it was also being fulfilled in the time of Paul. The people to him, to whom he was preaching, they also had rejected the gospel. And that is the essence, the theme in this section of the book of Romans. As we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 11, the Apostle Paul makes a case that the fact that Israel is being excluded as, as a nation by and large, their exclusion from being part of the children of God, that cannot be counted against God as though God were unfaithful to keep his promises, to keep his word, because Paul himself says he is living proof that God has not rejected his people because he's saying, look at me, I am a Jew. I am a descendant of Abraham through the bloodline of the tribe of Benjamin. So therefore, it cannot be that God forgot his promises to the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, we pointed out a few examples in the New Testament of how there are and there were Jewish believers. So today, Paul turns to the next logical question, and that is something like this. Okay, if God did not reject Israel, then what happened? Why is it that Israel rejected and still rejects Jesus? With that sentiment, Paul made it clear that the nation of Israel, despite having all the benefits of being the chosen people of God, chosen nation, 
through whom he brought Jesus, the Messiah. They had all the benefits that other nations did not have. The oracles of God, being the keepers of that, having the temple, offering sacrifices, being close to God. Their provision that God gave them, both spiritually and physically, Israel, by and large, remained in unbelief. Israel remained in such unbelief that they were actually blinded to the fact that they were in unbelief. So then, what are the consequences of that unbelief? That is what we're going to treat today. Paul's main point then that we'll extract from this passage is that the effects of unbelief are a curse. And I'm going to give you a preview of what the three main headers will be. As we see the effects of unbelief, we are essentially being, that is essentially a curse to be judged. We're going to see those in three main points. First, effect of unbelief number one that we're going to see is that you will be unrighteous. In the eyes of God, you will be unjustified, guilty, and condemned. Effect number two of unbelief is callousness. Continuing to sin, continue in rebellion. And that will cause us to actually be okay with it. We actually don't think that we are in sin because we become callous. And effect number three of unbelief that we'll draw from this text is the essence that the blessing that should have been a joy becomes a curse as it did to the people of Israel. So let's get right to it. Effect number one of unbelief, unrighteousness. Romans, Romans 11, 7 reads, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So let's recap. Israel failed to obtain what they were seeking. What were they seeking? Let us recap Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. This is Paul's lament when he's really bummed out that the nation of Israel has rejected Christ. It says, For I bear them witness that they, the Jewish folks, have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What was Israel seeking? They were seeking righteousness. They were seeking a right standing before God. Okay? Now that's not a bad goal to have. As a matter of fact, every human being, deep inside our souls and our hearts, we know that we are flawed, fallen, and that we need redemption. Now we suppress that truth. Romans 1.18 talks about that. That the natural man suppresses the truth of God. So Israel then had this misguided idea that if they tried hard enough, they could fulfill God's law. Essentially saying, I can be righteous on my own, on my own doings, on my own works. That revealed their pride. The fact that Israel thought they could establish their own righteousness, that's what scripture says, trying to establish their own righteousness. As the Bible says here, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Ignorant of the righteousness of God. In other words, they had no clue how holy God really was. These are the people of God, okay? These are the people who memorized scripture, who attended Sabbath, who fasted, who tithed, 
Okay? And this is why the passage of the self-righteous Pharisee that says, well, I, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like, like that conniver, like that publican over there. Like, I'm actually a good person. And he lists off the things that he did. And get this. He actually did those things. They actually did those things. Which is already many levels better than we do, right? Because in the eyes of the world, we as Christians may say that we do those things. We actually don't even do those, right? So how worse off are we? At least they were doing them. They, they were claiming that they did, and they actually did, because they were keeping tabs with each other. But what that amounted to is not understanding how holy God really was. And in turn, necessarily not understanding how sinful they really were. A low view of God, a high view of self. If we fast forward to this very day, nothing is new under the sun. This is still the attitude of the human being. So righteousness, what is righteousness? Right? They were trying to establish their righteousness. They did not submit to the righteousness of God. What do we mean by that? Righteousness is moral uprightness, virtue, and ultimately, perfection. The true essence, if there was an ultimate, quote-unquote, good character, a good person, that would be ultimate righteousness. And everyone, as I've stated before in this series, everyone somehow, in some way, seeks, is seeking to vindicate themselves as righteous. Some may say, well, no, I'm actually, I don't care what people think. Oh, yes, you do. That righteousness that everyone seeks may be to appear virtuous to themselves, convince themselves, or to society, or even to God. I can be righteous on my own. However, we know from Scripture that just as the Jews were off in that pursuit, they were off to the races trying to establish their own righteousness. We know that the majority of humanity has gone astray and are not righteous because we too are seeking our own righteousness according to our standards. Or even if we're foolish enough, looking at the standards of God and saying, I could keep them, no problem. Well, you just fell. I've just fallen in the same predicament that the Jews did. Not understanding the righteousness, perfection, holiness of God, and hence, not understanding our own righteousness. So the key here then is, in this first verse, there's only one way to appear righteous before God. That is, there's only one way to become righteous, and that is not of our own doing. It is a gift to receive the perfection of Christ when we trust in Him by faith and repent of our sin. It's the only way. Romans 3.22, the first portion of that says, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ for all who believe. Another passage that Paul is talking about leaving all that self-righteousness behind in order to gain Christ. He says this in Philippians 3.9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And then one last reference here, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. If we want to be righteous before God, we must have the righteousness that God has. Okay? That, that is basically, the bar is too high. Can you be as righteous as God is? Never. That is the standard. The standard is not, well, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as my neighbor. It is not graded in a curve. It is graded, if you will, on the basis of the righteousness of God, which is ultimate perfection. And that is why it's only attainable by trusting in Christ. Okay? That's what the Jews were seeking. Righteousness. So we see from this then that the righteousness we need to be right with God, it is not earned. Rather, it is gifted. It is gifted by an exchange. Jesus takes our sin, and we take the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that a marvelous exchange? Jesus takes our filthiness, and we take his righteousness. It is a gift, the great exchange that is often denoted. And then it is by grace, and it is not cheap grace. It was paid for by the most expensive penalty ever given. The wrath of God. It was paid for by the sacrifice, by the blood of Christ dying upon the cross for those who believe. And then, my Christian brother and sister, take comfort. That sacrifice, that assurance, that righteousness is not temporary. It is eternal. If you are in Christ... He will see you through your stumblings, your struggles, etc. Christ paid the price once and for all. And nothing nor anyone will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Remember that. So take heart. Now that verse says that the elect obtained it. Where well, we spoke about election already in, in the series, but just to, to recap here since Paul mentioned it. This verse is in the context of Israel. Within Israel, God having a remnant. And that remnant obtained the righteousness that is required by God. Since it is not possible to obtain that righteousness by self-merit, God in His mercy grants belief to His remnant, to the Israel within Israel. So that that remnant can see the holiness of God and they can see their own sinfulness Realize that they are lost and turn to Christ in faith, in repentance. Now, given this is not a sermon on, on God's elect, I'm limited on what I can say on that. But suffice to say, both things are true. God has his elect. And yet, each person is responsible for their own sin and for rejecting Christ. Both of those things are true. Every unrepentant sinner is condemned because they love their sin and they have zero interest in God. And the message to all is the same. Repent. Turn to Jesus. So for this first header then, what can we say about the effect, the first effect we see here of unbelief being unrighteousness? The effect of unbelief is seeking God's blessing, but seeking it through the wrong means. 
by their own merits. Their righteousness cannot be obtained that way. It must be pursued only by faith in Christ. Effect number two of unbelief, callousness. Right, so Paul tells us the elect, the remnant of God obtained righteousness, but the rest were hardened. So Romans 11, 8 reads as follows. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. This is a quote from the Old Testament. It's actually referenced in several instances. Isaiah 6, Isaiah 29, Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 43, Jeremiah 5, Ezekiel 12. And they all point to the same concept. That Israel saw but could not really perceive. That they heard but they really couldn't understand. That's a common theme in the people of Israel. It was both happening in the Old Testament throughout their history, and it was also happening as a fulfilled prophecy at the very time that Paul was writing this. Now it says that God gave them a spirit of stupor. That is, marginal consciousness, especially characterized by an unresponsive, unresponsiveness to spiritual and moral matters. Unable to perceive the truth that God is the one who gets to decide what is good and what is evil. Remember the lie of Satan to Adam and Eve? When you eat of that fruit, you will be able to determine by yourselves what is good and evil. You can be like God. Okay? Unresponsiveness to spiritual and moral matters. And then eyes that would not see. Obviously, they could see physically. There was not, they, they were not physically blind. Interestingly, we sang for the second week in a row of the song, Son of David, in which a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, if I recall correctly his name, he, being blind, actually was spiritually able to see who Jesus was. Okay. So much so that when the crowd was passing by, he yelled out, Son of David, have mercy on me. That is the attitude of someone whose eyes have been opened to the truth of who Christ is. Have mercy on me. Not, why did you make me like this? See the difference? Eyes that would not see is a reference to spiritual blindness, an inability to see who God is and His holiness, and an inability to see who they really are in their own sinfulness. It says, ears that would not hear. Obviously, they could hear audibly, by large, a oral tradition, but yet, they have an inability to understand spiritual truth. Hear it but can't understand. My brothers, my sisters, if you understand spiritual truth, if you understand that you are fallen in your sin, that you need a Savior, God has given you mercy to understand that truth because that is foolishness to the world. They literally think that we are foolish for believing the gospel. 
And that is a prophecy that is being fulfilled this very day. The world thinks that the gospel is foolishness. And Paul says, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, oh, how joyous news it is to us that we are being saved. Now it says that God did that to unbelieving Israel. My brothers and sisters, we do not need to apologize for what God has done, for what God has said, because he is the only one who is righteous. We do not water down what the scripture says in passages such as this one, or in previous, in previous passages where God talks about election, and he said that he loved one of the twins and he hated the other. He loved Jacob, he hated Esau. That's what God says. There's no need to apologize for that. There's no need to say something like this. Well, you know, Israel had a choice to accept Jesus, but since God looked ahead, he kind of knew who would reject him, and therefore he ordained, he decreed that they would not see and they would not listen. No, that's not what God says. It says God hardened them. God made them not see. God made them not hear. Remember this. This people we're talking about here, people that God had continuously shown favor to, took them out of Egypt, out of slavery, physically, had always given them physical provision, had done countless miracles against all odds to save them from ceasing to exist as a nation. They had the scriptures, they had the prophets, yet they thought very lowly of that God. They raised their fists against that God. So much so that they claimed, Lord, why, why do you treat us so bad? Can't you treat us a little better? Can't you give us better food? We actually were better off where we were. See how quickly then, any intention to give this people the benefit of the doubt, and perhaps it was quote-unquote God's fault, we see, like, actually, no, like these people were stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful. In this, we can see that unbelief brings callousness <clears throat> to our souls. Unbelief blinds us from seeing who God really is and also blinds us from realizing how serious our sin is. Unbelief makes us hear but not understand. In this regard, the unbelief of Israel was no different and is no different than unbelief today. Ephesians 4.18 says the following. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what's the takeaway from the second header then? The effect of unbelief causing callousness. That callousness of unbelief necessarily turns us to indulge in a lifestyle of sin. That's the bottom line. We are callous to sin. Fill in the blank for whatever sin I identify with or sins. Effect number three of unbelief. 
blessings, those things that should have been joyfully received as blessings become a curse. Romans 11, 9 and 10. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Unbelieving Israel is experiencing not only spiritual blindness, which is reemphasized here, but also they have bent their backs forever, it says there. The imagery here is of this old man that aged badly, whose back has been now bent, having lost strength, and cannot even sit up straight. It is not a pleasant description. This text is a quote from Psalm 69, in which David is expressing that someone here is in judgment. It says that their table, their table has become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. What does a table here refers to? Let's take a quick look at Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Psalm 23 describes the situation of a man of God in utmost distress in the trial of trials and David says there in Psalm 23 5 that in that in that scenario God prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies to the extent that his cup just overflows When David says that, being in the presence of his enemies, he's saying that there is a table set before him. There is a blessing that comes from God. There is a provision that comes from God. And that therefore he will not fear any evil because the Lord is with him. The Lord has prepared a table for him. The Lord will provide for him. The Lord will deliver him. And he has nothing to fear. In the midst of that trial, he will be fine. God will be with him. Paul is applying that, applying that concept in the quote from Psalm 69 to the fact that there is a blessing for Israel from God, but that very blessing has become a snare and a trap. Meaning, the imagery here is an animal who sees a nice, juicy chunk of food, whatever that might be. And as he goes and gets it, that's a blessing for, for that animal. He goes, snaps, he's trapped. And now what that animal thought was going to be provision for him is a trap that would actually kill him. That's what it turned to. Israel, in many respects, had what other nations did not have. Right? We mentioned that. Physically and especially spiritually. God brought them out of Egypt, delivered them multiple times from being wiped out. 
gave them the law, Moses, the prophets. And yes, he gave them discipline. In several instances, by using more wicked nations than them to punish them. So they would get their act together. As if all those victories over their enemies, as if all the oracles of God at their disposal were not enough, God also gave them physical blessings. There were times when the people of Israel lived in the land flowing with milk and honey. Times of blessing, times of abundance. And even in the times of hunger, in the times of hard living, God sustained his people. Yet, because of Israel's unbelief, those blessings, that table that was set before them, that provision of God, turned into a curse because they rejected the ultimate provision that God gave them, a Savior. In his commentary, in this chapter 11 exposition, which Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones quotes, to God's glory, this passage, I have a quote here that I'll, I'll put on the screen for you. It says this, The whole of the Old Testament is, in a sense, a prophecy of this climatic point when the Son of God came and the chosen people did not recognize Him, but crucified Him, preferring Barabbas to Him. So, the judgment of God comes down upon them. And the terrifying thing about that is that it all happened to them because they were the people of God. Because they did have the promises when no one else had them. Because they alone had the oracles, the word of God. These very blessings that God had given them were the things that had blinded them to the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. Wow, what an observation there. Our brothers and sisters, let us not be too quick to say, whoa, how could the Jewish folks reject Christ? It's so clear. They should have embraced him. Well, my friends, we too, as an evangelical culture, as a country enjoying of God's common grace, including access to so many resources, both spiritually and physically. What has that, what has those blessings have done to many? like the, the majority of professing Christians. Has it not made us lazy? Bloated with knowledge that hardly ever gets applied in our lives? Not really taking serious the call to obedience in our lives? The call to serve in our church? Has not that benefit of being blessed led us to living with and bearing the consequences of lukewarmness in our Christian life, either passively or actively engaging in recurring sins. What should have been a blessing to us in this context, all of God's provision for us spiritually, physically, financially, has also turned into a curse because of our own fault. Has not the blessing of health and even wealth, not in the prosperity sense, but relatively speaking, I think we're doing okay. Has that not in our culture turned men from being a blessing to him to a curse? 
turning his back on God and pursued the things of this world. Living in his way, a whirlwind of all the other sins that come with that. The blessings, the riches, the very word of God being available to us, the many rich resources and Bible content that we have at our disposal. We have all that. There were times when people didn't have it. And even now, there's some countries that are ruled by dictatorship that you're not allowed to do that. And the few times I've gotten a glimpse of what Christianity is like in those countries, my brothers and sisters, although they are suffering by any tangible measures, it seems like they're actually more spiritual and closer to God than we are. Our blessing has become a curse. So what are some final thoughts and applications here? What are the effects of unbelief today? Well, some of them, as a culture overall, given over to a reprobate mind. Romans chapter 1. We're there. Like we're at neck breaking speed. We're, we got there and, and we're proceeding as a culture. As a church, many times, the church in America is no different than the world. As families, men not leading godly in a godly way, women not submitting to their husbands, kids disobeying their parents, and having no interest in the dis of God as soon as they have some say in what they do and, and what they don't do. What about, what about as individuals, right? From the culture to the church to the families to the individual. The effects of unbelief, personal sin, pursuit of fleshly desires, disconnected from God. And that's really where it begins. It begins on the individual level. It is foolish for us to think that we can change the culture and we can go and fight the culture wars from a Christian perspective, which we should if we don't have our house in order, if I don't have my personal convictions in order. And then again, more effects of unbelief in our culture, in our lives, is unbelief in the gospel altogether, right? Unbelief that for some, unbelief altogether. For some, the unbelief that I have time. I have more time to just play games with God a little bit more. I have time. That's unbelief. The life of a make-believe Christian. Barely committed to a lifestyle of godliness, to pursuing God. Unbelief that your time on this earth is limited. Unbelief that your sin has consequence. Unbelief that you will make a train wreck of your faith if you don't repent. My brothers and sisters, may this never be. Repent of unbelief. And remember, it starts at the individual level. And then it expands from there to make progress. Comes to the individual, then to our households, then our involvement in the local church, then our involvement in the culture at large. One more effect of the unbelief today is self-righteousness, right? Which is unrighteousness. I had another real good quote 
by uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I don't have it there, but I'll read it to you. It says, and this is with the, with the context of self-righteousness. It says, if you are relying upon the fact that you have a Bible or that you are a church member or that you go to a particular building or that you are doing certain good works, you are like the Jews. You are outside. You are blind and you have not got it. And you will never get it along that line. There is only one way of salvation. This is the message of the whole Bible. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is simple by faith in him. Nothing else. If you bring anything else in you, you have not got it. You will never obtain it. You may get great personal satisfaction as the Jews had. But the test is this. How do you react to the preaching of justification by faith only? Are you annoyed or irritated by it? Do you feel it as unfair to you? If so, you are like the Jews. Self-righteousness. And this is both for the religious and the non-religious. Second overall observation of this text. Our blessing, your blessing, can become a curse. In what way? Well, comfort, no actual persecution of our faith. Relatively carefree about our well-being and our provision. At least compared to the rest of the world, right? The rest, the rest of the world is, doesn't have it as good as we have it. That can lead to a curse, lukewarmness. It will lead you to ultimately being apart from God. Your blessing is becoming a curse. Do not let that happen. Repent. And thirdly, don't be blind to the fact that you may be hardened this very day. Israel was hardened, but they were blind and callous. They didn't see it. When the prophets came and talked to them, when John the Baptist came and talked, when Jesus came and talked to them, Israel's position was, we are right, the prophets are wrong. Ultimately meaning, we are right, God is wrong. Don't be blind to the fact that you are hardened. For believers, you can be hardened also by having a half-hearted committed commitment to the things of, of the Lord. Knowing you should be obedient to be in his word more, to pray more. Which would lead to having a servant's heart to serve him, to serve the church, to serve others. Don't be hardened. And for unbelievers, you can be hardened in your pride, keep keeping on rejecting God. If that's you, you will sink further and further into your misery, into your unfulfillment, into your callousness and blindness towards who Christ is, towards his holiness, and towards towards your sinfulness, you'll think that you're fine. So to you too, repent and turn to him. May we be reminded of the great truth that as we repent, as we come to the Lord Jesus and we cry out the words of the blind beggar Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus says that all who come to him, he will turn none away. Let us be comforted in that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for you are faithful to fulfill your promises, not only with the remnant of Israel, but 
with the elect, with those that are grafted in, with us, the Gentiles. Lord, if it were not for your provision of a Savior, we would be lost. That's of first importance, the provision for our salvation, the Savior. Lord, and also, if it were not for you, for giving us talents, abilities, the ability to work, to make a living, we would also die physically. So you have provided for us. And in your common grace, you even provide and give talents and minds to those who don't even believe in you. And that is out of your common grace. So we may all turn to you this day, Lord, recognizing your holiness, turning to belief in Christ by faith, so that we may not fall in the trap that the Israelites fell in. May you grant us that through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.